You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. We've got a real treat this week. Um, Bethany McLean, who is the author of Saudi America most recently, and that's the book that we mostly talked about on the show, uh, but also the author of other books. Um, You probably know the smartest guys in the room. That's really the authoritative history on what happened with Enron. Um, but she's also written other books, All the Devils Are Here, Shaky Ground. Um, Bethany's a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Um, and I think it's actually interesting how we got connected. Um, a friend of mine, an old friend of mine from college, Alex Ainsley, I'm not even sure if Alex is listening, but if you are, Alex, shout out to you, uh, was reading Saudi America and sent me a passage from the book. And it turned out that I was quoted in the book. Um, Bethany had taken a a passage or a quote from my old work at geopolitical futures uh and it it was right there in saudi america so i looked bethany up on linkedin uh, and i got her contact information and i sent her a message and asked her if she'd come on the podcast and she said yes so i just want to say thank you to alex for sending me the passage and thank you for bethany for for being willing to respond to a cold email like that and for coming on the podcast Um, i was excited before bethany came on but I'm doubly excited now because I think this is one of the best episodes we've recorded. I certainly had a lot of fun recording it, and I hope that you all enjoy it. Uh, Before we get to the show, though, listeners, I did want to just take a minute and and announce one thing or tell you guys one thing. I begin each podcast by saying that Perch is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. And when we say human-centric, that's usually meant to, to indicate that we study humans that we think a lot of what's wrong with geopolitical analysis, with macroeconomic analysis, is that it loses sight of the fact that humans are the subject of everything. Economics, for example, is really just what a bunch of humans do in aggregate. That's all economics really is. So when we look at issues, we try and make sure we're understanding the human aspect and how it actually affects humans, in addition to understanding the macro aspects. Uh, There's another component, though, which is that I'm very intentionally trying to build a community of human beings who are interested in these issues. Um, That's the reason this podcast doesn't have any ads, and it's why I don't charge for this podcast. To be frank, I don't want to. My plan is never to, to have any ads on this podcast or to charge for it. I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, and I hate ads. It breaks up conversations in really awkward ways. And who needs, you know, another underwear subscription box or whatever new thing um, they're advertising in the first place. Um, So my goal is to never have to do that with the Perch Pod. And to do that, I'm going to need some help. And that help is I'd love it if if you guys like this podcast, if you've been enjoying following along, I'd like to invite you to just take a look at this new project that we've developed. It's called LATAM Politic, and it's a collaboration between Perch and between our partners at Visual Politic, which is um, a YouTube channel that's based uh, in the European Union. Um, LATAM Politic, it's spelled L-A-T-A-M-P-O-L-I-T-I-K.com. Um, what it really is, it's, it's a newsletter about the geopolitics of Latin America, and we're offering it in both English and in Spanish. Um, the idea behind it is relatively simple. In some ways, it's me putting my money where my mouth is. Um, Bethany and I, uh, Bethany and I allude to this in the podcast episode that we just recorded. But I really do think that as we move towards, unfortunately, a more adversarial relationship between the United States and China, and as we see rising and falling great powers trying to carve out their geopolitical spheres of influence, the place where that competition is going to be most um, well, violent, volatile, whatever word you want to insert there, is going to be in the in-between regions, the places like Central Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and especially Latin America. And I wanted to focus on Latin America um, because I think there is a real dearth of coverage about Latin America geopolitics out there. Um, in both English and in Spanish, if you're reading about Latin America, usually you're reading about drug cartels or Pablo Escobar's hippos or soccer or ideological arguments about communism versus not. And actually, there is so much going on in Latin America that you didn't even know about. Um, the edition that I just wrote about today, which will which, uh, we'll have already published by the time this podcast comes out, is about 
a territorial spat between Venezuela and Guyana, which is really about oil, which is also the subject of this entire podcast. Um, so there's, there's so much going on in Latin America, and we decided to throw our expertise at it. Um, we're charging $5 a month. You can choose whether you want to sign up in English or in Spanish. And I guess the ask here, what I'm asking, the help that I'm asking for is if you like this podcast, if you feel like you want a little bit more perch in your life, but you didn't have the resources to sign up for a full consulting relationship with us, uh, this is a really nice medium ground. And for the, for the price of a beer or for a fancy coffee, um, you get access uh, to really, I think, really good, really unique and really objective coverage of how global politics is affecting Latin America and how different Latin American countries are interacting with each other without all the ideology and without all the other bullshit. So if that sounds interesting to you or if you want to help me out by by helping me make sure that we never have to do any kind of ads on this podcast or charge for it in any way, check out latampolitik.com. Um, otherwise, all the usual stuff applies, listeners. Um, we still have our free newsletter at perchperspectives.com. If you haven't left a comment or a review of the podcast, please consider doing so. That helps us immensely. If you have comments about the podcast or you want to get in touch with us to talk about what geopolitical services we provide, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I read and reply to just about everything that comes in. Um, oh yes, of course, I always, I always forget to say this. Um, Bethany and I are recording on Friday, March 12th. I actually just poured myself a glass of rosé. I hope that, uh, well, this is coming out Monday morning, so I hope, listeners, you're not enjoying a glass of rosé on a Monday morning. Um, but uh, I hope in the afternoon or wherever you're listening to this, you're also kicking back. But it's Friday, March 12th that we recorded this podcast episode. It should appear on March 22nd. There was nothing particularly time-sensitive in this podcast, but I do always like to let you guys know when there's a gap between recording um, and when it actually comes out. So that's quite enough for me. Thank you again to Bethany for coming on and let's get to the conversation. Cheers, y'all. Bethany, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I, I've read Saudi America and the smartest guys in the room in the last month. So I feel like you're a friend of mine now because you've sort of been a part of my life for the last month, but it's nice to sort of meet you, well, I guess sort of in person, right? Yeah, sort of in person as much as we can do so in a strange time, right? Yeah. Um, but so I, I wanted to ask you on to talk specifically about Saudi America um, because um, there's so much involved there with geopolitics and intersecting with the United States and oil, all that stuff is sort of in the wheelhouse of somebody who has to deal with geopolitics and you had a great perspective on it. Um, to start with though, um, I just want to sort of lob a softball up and also help the audience along. Just help us, what is fracking? How does it work? Just at the most basic level, how would you explain it to listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the energy industry? So fracking is actually a combination of two techniques that have been sort of shorthanded into the word fracking. And some in the industry detest the word fracking because they view it as pejorative, as an invention of those who were a word coined by those who were opposed to the practice. But it's really two, two old techniques, but combined together, oldish techniques. One, which is um, hydraulic fracturing of wells, which is pumping a lot of substance into a well in order to try to get it to eject more oil or gas. And the other is horizontal horizontal drilling, which is having a well go horizontally instead of instead of vertically. And essentially, the combination of these two things um, enabled a resurgence of both oil and gas production in the U.S. And it really is pretty stunning. Back around the time of the financial crisis, uh, there were apocalyptic hearings in front of Congress about impending shortages of natural gas and about the U.S.'s dwindling uh, prospects for producing oil and what on earth it all meant. And a decade later, the world couldn't have been a more diff different place. And a lot of that is that's that's due in, entirely to the advent of fracking. Yeah, when I, when I was growing up, it was all we, we were all worried about how like, you know, gas prices were going up. That seemed to be the conversation. And it's amazing how fast it switched. I, I don't even think that sort of the American zeitgeist has gotten on top of, of, of what it means to be an energy superpower, which is really what the United States is. But before we dive a little bit into that, I also just wanted to ask, um, or at least sort of lay out for the listeners, who was Aubrey McClendon and, and why did you pick him of all people to sort of be the, the water mule or the protagonist for the story that you were trying to tell? So the two, the answer to the same question is, 
is, is the same. It's because he's one of those characters that when you come across in what we do, what I do, you just can't wait to write about them because he is one of those proselytizers who believes himself, who is the ultimate salesman, who um, causes a lot of change. McClendon was also a Renaissance man, but he's one of those larger than life characters that when you when you find them, you, you want to understand who they are and, and write about them. And in some ways, um, Aubrey McClendon, the company he created and, and founded and built was a company called Chesapeake Energy, which just recently declared bankruptcy. But it, for a while during the heyday, was the second largest producer of natural gas in, in the United States. And Aubrey was the one who 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 he was he was the, the founder, the, the co-founder, but the one who really built it to its its preeminent position um, against in an odds defying way. Um, so I find I found that. I, I found that fascinating, um, but in a way, he's an odd selection for this for this book. And again, some in the industry would dispute would say that my very choice of Aubrey shows that I was I was biased. He's not the guy who founded fracking. He's not the guy who invented it, and he wasn't the leader of some of the companies who have who have who have who have who have done this well. But what he was was the salesman. He was the guy who 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 got investors around the world to put billions upon billions of do dollars into US fracking. And I think you can you can ask if it weren't for Aubrey, would the entire industry have been different because that capital was the lifeblood of blood of fracking. People think it's the chemicals that go into wells, that it's the water that's used in fracking a well, but it's actually capital that was the lifeblood of the industry. And so I viewed Aubrey as the salesman in chief for US fracking. And and that to me was a critical part of the story. Yeah, that was actually the the part of the book that for me came through the most vividly and and was the most surprising, which was I, I always thought of fracking as really, you know, an, an ode to US technical innovation. Like the Americans have figured out how to use technology again in order to get ahead of the game. And and really I think the one of the central premises of your book is that yes, like there were technological innovations and it was incredible, but really this was about um, it, it was really an after effect of the 2008 financial crisis and years of extremely low interest rates that happened to produce a perfect capital environment for this very capital intensive technology to actually be useful. Because if the market had sort of been, I don't want to say working in a, in a free way, because I don't think the market ever works in a free way, but if the market had sort of been in normal pre-2008 conditions, it's not it wouldn't matter how charismatic Aubrey was nobody was going to pony up the level of capital to go into it. And that still seems to be the case. Is that a fair reading? Yeah, I think that is a fair reading. And that's what, what made me so interested in it too, because I started... I started actually as more of a more of a fan of fracking, honestly, and it's it's odd how much the work on the book um, changed changed my mind. But I saw it the way you did: is this incredible technological innovation that had unleashed transformation in in America? And I thought I was a little skeptical of environmentalists who criticized it because I thought, well, you're plugging your beautiful Apple iPhone in your electric car into something that requires electricity. Don't all of us who live on the coast or in cities? where we're insulated from what it looks like to produce energy, pretend that we don't need to care about it, that we don't care about it, but we actually have to. Anyway, so I saw some hypocrisy in, 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 in all of in all of that, um, um, but but Aubrey, but but it was a question of money in, in the end. And I had come across this paper written by um, the Energy Institute at Columbia that said basically the key ingredient in fracking was was capital. And if it weren't for the two thousand and eight financial crisis and the resulting era of low interest rates, you can question how big fracking ever ever would have become. So the story is as much a financial one as it is a, a technological one, if not if not more. And I I do think to some degree that. That's still true. One of the promises when I wrote my book was that the technological innovation was going to continue. And even though it wasn't profitable net at the current time to frack, technological innovation was going to make it insanely profitable. And you know what? That's that's still a possibility. But thus far, those those innovations haven't proven out. Many of them actually backfired. Yeah, once we start getting into into the land of this is all going to work, once we discover the thing that we haven't discovered yet, it starts feeling weirdly like Theranos or something like that. That's so well said. But yeah, there was one, I, there was actually one statistic in there that jumped out at me that I, I even wrote down from my notes, which was that um, I think it was Goldman Sachs or somebody was was saying that it was going to cost fifty eight billion 
just to keep production levels at their current level in 2023. And that was kind of mind blowing. And when you look at the way markets are now freaking out over interest rates now hitting what 1.6%, everybody's freaking out. Um, you know, if interest rates ever actually really started running up, um, which eventually they will, maybe it's two years, maybe it's eight years, who knows, um, in the post COVID economy, it, it feels like that's sort of, that's the, 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 the stopwatch on the fracking industry, because as soon as that actually starts happening, all the things that you laid out, it, it doesn't make sense unless, like you said, they, they discover, they get some miracle beamed into their brains. Well, the stopwatch has already run out in some ways, because even before COVID came, came along, um, investors were losing patience with fracking companies and the, the, the mechanics that had made the whole thing work um, um, had broken down. And the mechanics that you, people, people say, well, wait, this is unprofitable. Well, then you have to be wrong because then no one would fund it because then no one will make money. And I'll say, aha, no, there are lots of ways for people to make money off business that is fundamentally unprofitable. See exhibit one, the subprime mortgage crisis, right? A lot of people made money out of something that was fundamentally destructive. And, and ultimately extremely unprofitable. Um, so the same is true of, of fracking in, 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 in the sense that it was sort of a game. A private equity firm could essentially fund a fracking startup where people would assemble land, and then that private equity startup would get sold to an already public company. And investors in the public market were willing to buy the company's stock because they believed the promises that eventually this was going to make money. So, And it was growth at a time when very few things were growing. So it's almost kind of like an internet startup game where you say, well, it's losing money, but it's growing really fast. So I'm going to pay a lot for, for this growth. And debt investors were willing to fund it because they said, wow, I can get slightly higher returns on this debt than I can um, on, on, on safer debt. So yes, I'm willing to buy the debt of these companies in this ultra low, low interest rate environment. Um, and so the private equity people could make a ton of money because they'd fund this company and then they'd sell it to the, to the public company. And the people along the way could make money, even though the enterprise itself was fundamentally unprofitable. But that started breaking down, um, even as I said, even before COVID, because investors in the public equity market started to say, wait a minute, this, this is never going to work. And you guys are getting rich and executives are getting rich and we're going to get left holding the bag and we want to see returns before we're willing to invest anymore. So even in, in, in even, the, even the debt markets were starting to get suspicious. And so and even in the run-up to, co to COVID, um, uh, the funding had slowed way, way way down and then with the oil price crash in the wake of COVID, it basically all all came all came to a stop and so the question is open what happens now you've obviously got high, much higher oil prices which would make some fracking profitable but not at the scale that it was was before and and it's still unclear whether investors are willing to come back to the market so we're at an interesting inflection point right now i think yeah well and that that gets to the the whole sort of crux of the issue, which is the reason we have high oil prices is because the Saudis want there to be high oil price prices and they're reducing production in order to keep the price artificially artificially high. And that, that's one of the reasons I said that thing about Americans not really understanding the zeitgeist of what it means to be an American superpower, because it was around this time last year, I think it was right before COVID got nuts, where a lot of these shale companies were presenting to the Texas Railroad Commission, which for listeners, they, they regulate energy in Texas, not the railroad. It's confusing, but whatever. Um, and they wanted them to limit oil production. And all the free market you know, folks were out in force saying, oh, this is terrible. This is communism. This is this, that, and the other thing. But there was, there was one great quote from some um, older gentleman. I'm forgetting his name. I apologize. I'll have to go put it in the intro. Or he said, no, it's called pro-rationing. We did it from 1950 to 1972 when the U.S. was uh, was an energy superpower. Just everybody who remembered how to do it is dead. Um, and that's really the only answer uh, when you're trying to get the price up is to have the government come in and say, actually, no, there's a cap on production. And it, it was it was strange to me to see the, those fracking companies appealing to governments and, and government regulatory regulatory agencies to do that and then getting dismissed by the same people who would usually support them it's a whole it's a whole interesting mix isn't it 
Yes, it is. And I find that fascinating too, because it actually would have been in many ways in fracking companies' best interest to limit production and get a higher price because then they could have made money um, on the oil that they that they did produce. And certainly for the environment, it would have been a lot better because one of the really disgusting things that happened is as fracking really took off was that a lot of the natural gas that came out of wells was just being flared, meaning burnt off into, into the sky because there was so much of it and because natural gas prices were so low as a result of the surplus coming, coming from fracking. Nobody could make money on it. And when you think about that, that a, a, a substance that only a decade earlier we were, was precious and we were so worried it was in short supply, it was now just being wasted at great environmental cost. It really is, it really is quite astounding. <laughs> I won't use a more pejorative word. I'll just stop at astounding. Um, So it would have been in their best interest, actually, to limit production. But then it becomes a fascinating thing about when, which is a question raised by the pandemic, too, is when does our purportedly free market, which I agree with you, isn't really free, but when is it counterproductive um, in in the sense that Saudi Saudi Arabia could just say, all right, this is what we're going to do with production. But the U.S. is thousands of independent companies that can do as they damn well please. And it's very difficult for a government regulator to say, hey, it'd be all of in all of your best interests and in the country's best interest if you limited production. But the problem is it isn't in the individual executive's best interests. And so that's why they don't want to do it, because many of them, at least until recently, got paid based on production growth. And so they all said, but wait, we can make lots of money under the system as it is. Who cares if our companies don't make money and if we're depleting a natural resource that 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 can never that is called non-renewable for a reason it's non-renewable um um but they didn't have to care so yeah and i i don't know i don't know when folks decided or, or when it became convincing to people that capitalism meant growth rather than capitalism meant profitability because it really does feel like in the u.s economic system right now it is all about growth and that was another one of the interesting parallels i thought you brought out in the book which is we know about jeff bezos and mark zuckerberg and and all these tech CEOs, um, some tech companies are doing great. Some tech companies are worth a lot of money, even though they've never produced any profit at all. And quietly, all these all these shale tycoons are just making billions on the side. Nobody's talking about them in, in the same way, but in some sense, they're part of that same part of that same economy. There's something going on here that's beyond just the energy industry or just the tech industry. It's that, however, the system is set up right now is meant to reward growth whether it's good growth, bad growth, profitable growth, all that other kind of stuff. And at some point, that rubber is going to have to meet the road in the future, I would think. Yeah, that is such a fascinating point. Um, and again, so so well said. And I, I think that transition started to happen. It's not um, it's not accidental that it's it's correlated with lower and lower interest rates because the lower lower interest rates mean that that future cash flows are worth more money and today's cash flows are, are worth less. And so and in a super low interest rate environment, the one thing you, you want to bank on is is growth. And so I think that's part of the the switch, but it's also a cultural one, right? Because you had so many people who have made so much money out of growth, whether it's whether it's profitable or not. So it's a really interesting convergence of a cultural moment with a financial one, each one enabled by the other. Yeah. And I, I also want to go back to the thing you were saying about um, you know, the Saudis just being able to cut production, because um, you also mentioned this in the book, where it's you know, a lot of these companies, they're competing against countries. Um, so you're competing against Petrobras, um, or you know, uh, what's his face? Uh, I shouldn't say what's his face. Bolsonaro just uh, <laughs> just appointed his own, his own former general to be the president of Petrobras. We all know what he's going to do with the thing. Um, Aramco uh-huh. is Saudi Arabia. Rosneft, okay. R- Russia's an enemy. You can expect them to oppose you. But Brazil and, and Saudi Arabia are two of the U.S.'s closest partners in the last couple of years. And the state-owned oil companies don't care at all about the the shale producers, right? They actually probably want to cripple the U.S. oil market. So there's this interesting thing here where the geopolitical relationship might tell you one thing, but then when it actually gets down to the industry level, things are bad. And the reason I wanted to bring that back was because I feel like one of the threads that kind of pulls throughout the the book, and I can't tell which way you come down on it. It almost feels like you're having a conversation with yourself at times about it, but it's whether... Um, energy exports are a good thing for the United States or not. And it seems to me that this gets back to the sort of cultural understanding or awareness of what what power or vulnerability energy has, because all the all the countries that I just named and all the countries that are dependent on oil exports, it's usually not good to be dependent on oil exports. 
We're in a we're in a market that's fundamentally oversupplied too now, so it's it's even worse than it was before. And it just seems to me that actually, if if you're dependent on selling oil, the consumer might have a little bit more leverage than you're willing to realize than the actual producer. Um, so what, if I threw all that at you, sir, where, where do you land on whether whether and how export should be part of what's happening with oil, natural gas in the United States? Well, first of all, yes, you are absolutely right. I do have a lot of conversations in my own podcast. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I have to be careful that I don't start having them out loud as I'm walking down the street or otherwise in public places. But, but anyway, so it, it really is fascinating because as a result of, back to your point about the free, the free market, that there kind of is no such thing. Uh, there was a ban on oil exports since the 1970s when America first began to worry about its dependence on foreign oil. Um, and that, the fact that there was a ban on oil exports flies in the face of everything anybody might say about the free market, right? Um, and that got overturned, actually, in the final days of the Obama administration, of, 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 of all things. And it's, it's another fascinating element of this that we can come back to if you want to, which are the, the politics around, around shale, because the Obama administration was every bit as supportive of it, if not more so than the, than the Trump administration was, uh, oddly enough. Um, um, but it got overturned in the final days of the Obama administration um, as part of the omnibus spending bill at the end of 2015, and nobody even really noticed it was happening. Um, it, it just was sort of snuck into the final the final bill, and um, nobody nobody paid attention to it. And it's this momentous change in policy to allow oil exports. Um, I talked to the lobbyist who had who had orchestrated it, and he said that after he, he after it passed, everybody left town, and he went out for a Manhattan and a steak by himself because. <laughs> it was just viewed as such a so not not important you're right that i that i am mixed about it um uh, but i'm probably less mixed now than I, I i think i was on the one hand being able to export natural gas certainly weakens russia's stranglehold over europe or at least it theoretically should um because europe is so dependent on russia for its natural gas that's a, a geopolitical um um um, nexus or hotspot or whatever whatever you want to say, and so the idea that that the U.S. could export its natural gas to Europe and therefore free Europe from its dependence on Russia is a, is a really compelling one, uh, one that is more difficult to realize in actuality than than it sounds because exporting natural gas it is after all a gas is really complicated and really expensive um, since you have to build LNG um, stations. The huge multi-billion-dollar facilities to both convert the natural gas into a liquid and then reconvert it into a gas, and right now that is not happening or wasn't happening at nearly the speed that that people had that people had projected. But there is something um, compelling, and, and it's really expensive, and it makes American natural gas more, quite a bit more expensive than Russian natural gas. But there, there is something compelling about that. I mean, I am an American, and there is there there is something compelling about that. On the other hand, I think the most pivotal conversation or one of the most pivotal conversations I had for the book was with Charlie Munger, who um, everybody knows who Charlie Munger is, but dear God, if I can have half his brain power, a quarter, 10%, when, when I'm that age, I'll settle for just a smidgen. Um, that would be amazing. But he, he said, Look, there's still no substitute for um, for for the products that we we need for agriculture and agri for fertilizers. And agriculture is every bit as important. Food security is every bit as important to a nation as as energy security. And those, those are my dogs. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Happy to welcome them to the podcast. You have conversations with them too, I'm sure. As well. Spring. Um, anyway, but he he made the point that there was still no substitute for for fertilizer and, and for the the ingredients that are that are in fertilizer. And so until there was a substitute, whether it's the sun or whatever else, what were we doing to take this precious pro these precious products and sell them? outside the country at a time when oil prices were so cheap by historical standards. His point was, shouldn't we be buying everything we can from other countries that are willing to sell to us and conserving our own for a time in the future when we might need it? And so in a way, exports and our rampant, out-of-control, unprofitable uh, production became, for me, almost a microcosm of everything that's wrong with the current American economy in terms of short-termism, valuing growth over sustainability, um, and, and, and just the, the unwillingness to plan for the long term. 
Yet it makes me long for a, a party or even just a political faction that is actually conservative in, in, the, in the literal definition of that word that wants to conserve resources or conserve position. I don't think there actually is a, a real conservative party from that point of view in the United States. I don't know that there ever has been. The United States has always been so forward looking and so driven on the future that I don't know we've ever actually paused and thought about what we were doing for five seconds. Um, right. But I... I the the point about about the about exports though i don't know i'm i'm thinking more and more about this because i think the russians are actually more dependent on the europeans than vice versa because as you said it's really expensive and really complicated to take natural gas elsewhere if the europeans were just like nah we'll we'll go get lng from somewhere else we'll call cutter we'll call we'll we'll have, we'll have turkey build some kind of pipeline we'll get it from the americans the russians who else are they going to sell to they're going to sell it to uzbekistan i guess maybe china's going to consume some of it um, i think it actually it, when you're when you have that um, cons, um, producer and consumer relationship it, it gets leverage it, it sets bounds in the relationship i don't think it's a coincidence that saudi arabia has been doing whatever it wanted in recent years while the us hasn't been as dependent on saudi oil anymore yes there's this rhetorical relationship and and all this baggage going back years. But when you actually disconnect those things, Saudi Arabia doesn't listen to what the United States does. It, it saws its its people into different body parts and, and does horrible things with human rights. It, it invades Yemen. It does all this stuff. It doesn't care what the United States says about anything because that's not what matters. What matters to the Saudis now is selling to the Chinese, selling to the Japanese, selling to the South Koreans. They're the ones that sort of have the leverage. So I, I just don't know if... if um, if, if when U.S. policymakers are thinking about this, if they're appreciating, appreciating what it means to create an, a, a sector that is dependent on foreign consumption. I mean, the reason, or not, not the reason World War II kicked off, but the proximate reason that the United States got involved in World War II is because the United States said, Japan, you can't have any oil anymore. I mean, th that's what sets that whole sort of thing off. So I, I don't know. It, it just makes me nervous when we start thinking of energy as this geopolitical tool that can just be used willy-nilly and also that the goal is to is to say no russia you can't sell any gas here you can only get your gas from here because then you're just going to isolate them and they're going to be completely cornered but i i don't know I, I go back and forth on it it's hard yeah i go back and forth on it too it's an interesting question when i talked to former obama administration officials they were adamant that the that the obama administration did not want to use energy as a geopolitical threat because we america had said for years don't don't do that anymore. That's that's not smart. And so then comes the Trump administration, which starts talking about you know energy independence and as this as this grand idea, which itself is a fraud. And we can we can talk about that. But um, but um, but but it was it was a real it was it was a real change. And I I think the questions you're raising are really interesting, and they're ones that I sort of thought about for for the book. Um, not to give myself too much credit, but one is this this role of commercial relationships, which is actually can be a good thing because that dependency keeps it creates a kind of mutual mutual dependency that that then that then helps prevent wars from breaking out because at least at its best but yet it can flip around and become leverage to be exactly the opposite right so it's not it's not clear cut it's not clear cut that a commercial relationship is always a good thing that will prevent war sometimes it becomes a tool in causing war as you point out with world war ii but the other thing i definitely thought about for the book is what's the cost of a failed state so we it was a conventional view that that energy independence would make the U.S. safer and more secure. But I think it's the opposite for, for a couple reasons. One, going back to Munger's point about long-term safety and security versus, versus short-term. But also, if Saudi Arabia does disconnect from the U.S. and stops carrying what we think, or if it becomes a failed state as a result of U.S. oil production and Saudi's inability to, to fund itself in the face of low oil prices, or if Russia became a failed state, or if places in Africa that were dependent on oil exports um, as their economies collapsed, that's not actually, it doesn't make the world a safer place. It's easy to be a chest-beating American and say American power rise, everybody else fall, but it, but it doesn't work that way. Failed states are really, really dangerous to, to all of us. So I started to think about that as, as I worked on the book as well. Yeah, and there's something about that too, which is this this myth of self-reliance, which maybe it was possible at one point in time, but the global economy is not set up that way. The American economy is not set up that way. Um, so maybe you can be energy independent technically, 
but you're never going to be independent for everything that you need. Even if you're going to do um, solar, if everything's going to be solar and wind, you're still going to need rare earths. And we don't do rare earths here right now. So you're going to have to go and get them in, envi in environmentally unconscionable ways in places like Chile or China, anywhere else. Um, you know, the, the fact that we pay $500 or $800 for an iPhone is only because we can mine, you know, minerals from all the way across the world with child labor, doing it out of Congo, all that other kind of stuff. You, you can't really disconnect yourself from the global economy and not completely transform the way things are going. And there, there's something in the American psyche about wanting that self-reliance, not having to depend on anyone. Whereas American power really is actually built on the idea of connecting everyone. Everybody gets to play by the same rules and as long as we can all, you know, sort of participate together in a reasonable way, everybody's going to be enriched. That's actually how American power has been sustained. And yeah, it's it, it's been interesting. It started in the Obama administration. It was interesting to watch it continue in the Trump administration, where we sort of got into a defensive crouch and just said, no, we, we don't want to be out in the world. We just want to be ourselves. We want our own energy. We want our own this. It's, it's just not a realistic viewpoint, I think, if you want to maintain the U.S.'s position and quality and standard of life in the world right now. Yeah, it was it was funny to me. That was definitely an intellectual journey of sorts, at the risk of sounding um, completely full of myself. But um, that, that I went on at the, uh, during during writing the book because I started thinking energy independence was a real thing, and wasn't it this grand notion that we could produce all the energy that we needed? And then as I started to think about it, I thought, but oil prices aren't set by the Texas Railroad Commission anymore, the way they were in the days of uh, in the heyday of American oil production. They're set on global markets, and so there's no such thing as energy independence because the price that Americans pay at the pump is always going to be dependent on something happening around the world. And so the, this, this concept doesn't, doesn't exist. And then I thought more if energy independence is created by production that is fundamentally unprofitable. And so in and of itself, it's dependent on flows from the capital markets and on the willingness of global investors to fund an unprofitable enterprise, then that's not independent either. It's completely dependent on the appetite of global investors, on where interest rates are, on what else is, what other investment opportunities are, are, are available. So so I thought this this whole thing is a mirage, and yet you hear energy independence, or at least you heard it repeated over and over again, and it was some sort of idealized um, idealized statement that at the time the words were invented actually meant something, but they got stripped of their meaning over the ensuing decades, and yet we kept saying them like a talisman. Have you? This is not related to Saudi America at all. Have you been watching this Netflix show Occupied? No, should I? You should. It's it's about. Uh, I think I recommended this in the last podcast, listeners. So I'm I'm sorry for repeating myself, but it's it's this Norwegian French show where the Norwegians have like created some way um, to have completely clean energy, and the EU and Russia gang up and basically invade Norway and force them to keep pumping oil and gas to the rest of the EU. It's it's really great. It's, it's oh, fascinating. Okay, yeah. I'm going to watch that. That'll yeah. be next on my list. I'm watching Russian Doll right now, which <laughs> I find fascinating and interesting so i can go from russian doll to occupied hmm. yeah <laughs> it, it, it'll it'll all make sense um but yeah so but but back on track uh the uh, uh, before we sort of talk about some other stuff i wanted to zoom out and just ask you so you know what do you think about the future um you you sort of you actually laid out three scenarios from ihs at, at the end of the book one of which was uh, was called rivalry it was this free market of energy sort of future Autonomy was another one, which which was basically a rapid shift to renewables. And then the third was vertigo, which was this boom-bust cycle that prevented a transition away from a less carbon-intensive economy. Um, you know, the book came out in 2018. It feels to me like we're in vertigo. Um, as somebody who does geopolitics for a living, I see the boom-bust cycles. I see countries like India and South Africa still dependent on coal, have no incentive to move to anything else in the in the short to medium term, especially with how volatile um, international politics is becoming. Um, where where did you think we were in 2018 when it came out, and where do you think we are now? And then where do you think we're going? I guess a three part question there. <laughs> so the um, the humbling thing about working on this book was that I realized everybody who's made predictions about the oil market in the past has mostly one thing in common, which is that they've been wrong. <laughs> And so I, I stayed away from predictions in the book, which is why I was so happy when I found that IHS scenario, because I thought it made things very clear without me having to actually make a prediction of, of, of any kind. I do think we've moved closer to vertigo, and certainly with the, the pandemic has, has exacerbated 
interpreted that in the sense that you know oil prices plunged and now they're back up and 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 there's an argument that because oil production has been curtailed so badly both by by the failure of fracking and by the underinvestment over the past decade in other forms more conventional forms of of oil production that we can't fill the hole and so the idea that we were going to continue in this um, blissful period of low oil prices where nobody really had to think about it was contingent on fracking's continued growth. And if that's over and we have to turn back to more conventional sources of supply, we might suddenly be back in a world where oil shortages seem like a real thing. And that could lead to huge spikes um, in, in, in the price of oil. Um, but we probably are on the, on the way to a future where most of our energy needs are met by renewables. So those spikes are going to um, conflict with this idea that the age of oil is coming to an end. And you don't have to you don't have to have it come to an end. You just have to know that it's coming to an end for the price to go into secular decline. So you have these basically competing um, competing forces battling with each other. And I I don't I don't I don't know. But I guess if I had to place a bet, I would I would bet now on continued vertigo and possibly huge spikes in the price of oil. And that the cost of energy becoming a discussion here that we haven't really had since the 1970s. Yeah, it, it feels that way. It also feels like the United States has something of has some agency in, in this question. And I think that's maybe why I was so drawn to your book and to this topic in general. Maybe it was why you were too, um, because the United States, by virtue of its incredible um, energy wealth, um, it, it can move markets if it wants to. It, it can define incentives for different industries or different parts of the industry if it wants to. Um, but it's going to have to get away from this idea that it's just going to, everything's going to work itself out the way it is in the market right now. That That's not going to work. If, if that's the way we go, it's vertigo, I think, no question. Maybe 10, 15 years, we get our act together when we're forced to. Um, but we ha- it, it feels like the United States has a chance here to be proactive and to be a source of of real positive, I don't want to say positive and good. I mean, that, that makes it sound a little too fluffy, but, but has a chance to really sustain the global economy and the international order that it's already built by allowing the, the, that transition to be more seamless and to, to use different parts of it. Um, but it's going to, it's going to really have to be a philosophical and a policy shift at a very deep level. And I just don't see anybody thinking about it or talking about it that way right now. They they have other things to deal with too. I mean, we're in a pandemic. It is, it is really interesting because, because you're right that we just don't focus on energy the way we really should. When you think of how critical it is to all of our lives and the fact that battles over access to energy have caused most, most wars throughout, throughout human history, right? This is, this is a very, big issue and yet it just doesn't get the attention on a on a national level that it should. I do wonder you know when you look at the at the pandemic the fact that we now have vaccines as a direct result of operation warp speed which is the government essentially creating a market it to me proves the lie to this notion that capitalism exists separately from government decisions that there is such a thing as a free market because in in a way the fact that there there are vaccines way before anybody thought was possible is the best of entrepreneurship and innovation, but yet it took a government commitment to creating a market to make to make that exist. And so why can't you bring some of that same thinking to to the energy sphere? But the United States has never had an energy policy. I also think geopolitically there's something scary about it in about it for, for all of us, but particularly for America, because we do have so much access to, to, um, to non-renewables. And the geopolitics in a world that is powered by renewables are very, very different. Again, think about that. Nobody even knows what that looks like. And that's, it's kind of a fascinating, scary, um, unpredictable new world. And so if you're thinkers who are mired in a century of, of, of geopolitics surrounding energy that dictates strategy and and choices in the world to suddenly have it to transition thinking in an entirely different way is both necessary but i think also frightening yeah and i I also i mean as long as renewables is dependent on things like cobalt or lithium or rare earths um, we have a picture of what it would look like. It would look like the 1950s and 60s, which brought us wonderful things like the Korean War and the Cuban Missile Crisis and Congo usually gets swept under the rug here. All weird competitions in faraway places because, 
on, on the map, they had some access to resource or a political ideology that was important, and it was important for the heavyweights to sort of duke it out. Um, so as, as long as renewables require some of those minerals that are scattered around the world, it probably looks like that. It probably looks like the Chinese and the French and the Americans running around in Africa, running around in places in South America, trying to get those resources out in a way so that they can have their renewable grid, um, et cetera. And it, the weird part is that um, you know, in just the span of 10 years, because of the fracking, the United States is is in the position of of having oil if it needs it and having hydrocarbons if it actually needs it. And that's that's what gives it such agency. We, we can either use that to try and create a global system that is more sustainable, or we can use that to screw over the Chinese or screw over whoever we don't like. It, it really is a, a choice at that level, I think. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, and yes, and I, I think there is also the subtext of what you're saying is that there is this rosy renewables aura where we all think, isn't it going to be a better, prettier world once renewables have eclipsed non-renewables? But, you know, maybe not. When you think about that scramble for rare earth and rare earth materials and the ugliness involved in acquiring them and mining them, and the waste produced by making solar panels, there's room, there is room for a policy that that thinks about all of that and creates a nuanced mixture of energy sources that 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 doesn't that doesn't lead to a really ugly fight over over rare earth materials. Yeah, I mean trying to find nuance in, in 2021 is, is pretty hard. I feel like it was. Oh man, that is, that is definitely the thing that went missing this year. If it existed before 2021 murdered nuance. <laughs> yeah. But it, no, it's, it's depressing too. Cause I mean, the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The, the reason we have nuclear bombs was because scientists in the 1920s and thirties thought they were going to discover a new renewable source of energy that was going to be free for everyone. That That's why we started researching that stuff in the first place. So take that as a warning listeners for a, if we continue on this path, things are not going to go well. Um, Bethany, I'm conscious of time, and I, I wanted to pick your brain for just a couple minutes about Enron, if that's if that's cool, if we can switch gears for a second. Um, I'm betraying my age a little bit here. Enron's like one of the first sort of political things that happened when I when I had memory or consciousness of what was going on, really, and was aware of what was going on, but didn't really know a lot about it, just sort of knew some bad thing happened and that... Um, in my household, I don't think there was that much Enron stock, but I think there was a little Enron stock based on some of the feelings I was feeling at the dinner table. Um, but I, I, when I picked up Smartest Guys in the Room after fit, finishing Saudi, uh, Saudi America, I was thinking, and it started off this way, I was thinking, oh, this is going to kind of be like Halberstam's Best and the Brightest. Like I used to think that the U.S. was stupid about Vietnam, and then I read Best and the Brightest, and I still thought they were stupid, but I felt like everybody was trying to do the right thing. I could see how they got trapped into the this... Let's go back to your quote. <laughs> yeah, but I, I could see I could see how it happened. Yeah. Um, smartest guys in the room. I just got increasingly angrier the more I read, and by the end, I was ready to light myself on fire. It, it didn't feel like there was any goodwill anywhere. It just all felt like a like a bad joke in some ways. So I just wanted to ask. I mean, how did you stay sane? Is is am I being too strong there? I mean, I'm sure that there were people within the system, and the system itself, you know, victimizes people in different ways, obviously. Um, but it just felt like there was a lot of bad will there, that it wasn't that people got convinced of some bright future, but that really people were just doing bad things and taking advantage of a system that let them do that. That's interesting. Um, I don't know. Maybe I've become, oddly enough, maybe in the almost two decades since I wrote that book, Dear God, and I've become more forgiving in some ways, maybe because I've seen so much more. And so if that was my attitude at the time, it is it is less so now. And that I, I it's your quote again, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I do think there was a lot of fervor to change the world at, at, at Enron, but it was mixed in a particularly American way with a desire to get rich now. And so when those two things combine and people People can delude themselves that they are making money for a grand cause that is revolutionary or changing the world. I mean, see Theranos. Um, that's the most dangerous form of 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 um, self delusion that 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 there is. And I think there was that's what pervaded Enron was was that combination. And I guess I have some. <laughs> I think it leads to a great deal of damage in the world, but I get it from a human perspective because it happens time and time again in forms both small and, and large that we mistake our own, we, we camouflage our own 
ambitions to ourselves in this greater sense of societal good or revolution so that we can justify um, terrible things that we're doing while 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 lining our own pockets. And I, I, that's just it's the story that, that plays out time and time again. Yeah, one of the questions I had written down, and then after I wrote it down, I realized it was a stupid question, which was, I wanted to ask you if, if you thought there could ever be another Enron sort of type event again. But then I was like, well, but we had the 2008 financial crisis, and then we had Theranos, and I'm sure we're going to have three others, you know, with all the all the stimulus that's come through, somebody's going to misappropriate that or, or, or use it in some kind of fraudulent way. So it, I, it, it sort of feels like we haven't actually learned anything either from Enron, that the, the lesson is not taking. Well, it's actually really funny because it, when the global financial—I don't know if it's funny—but ironically, the global financial crisis was was brewing. I sort of dismissed warnings that we were headed for someplace something really bad because I thought I wrote about Enron. That's my crisis. That's my financial crisis in my lifetime. Nothing like this is going to happen again. That that is that was the story. We it's it's done. I mean, maybe when I'm you know ninety, there'll be something else that's really that that's like that. But that's a cataclysm like that. And and since then, we've had just any number of things, obviously. So, and they seem to be happening at an accelerated pace vis-a-vis um, -vis the past, or maybe it's just that it's recency bias, and it's just the time we're living in that we see it happening. So it feels like more like it's happening more now. And I'm, I'm, I haven't actually done an empirical study to know which is which is the correct which is the correct take on that. But for sure, I don't think, I think the forces that created Enron are the same ones we've been talking about now. Um, Short-termism, for sure, which still pervades our system to a shocking degree, despite the fact that we've been talking for at least two decades about how damaging it it, it is. Um, this idea that visionaries can be excused for all of their moral failings and that we can't ask questions of, of visionaries because they're so great and grand that they'll they'll figure it all out. I mean that's Theranos, um, that's Elon Musk to, to, to some extent, and that's still an open question how 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 that plays out. But no, I don't I don't think I don't think we've learned any of the lessons from from Enron. Great, that's that's the exact uplifting note I was hoping to close on. That's that's wonderful. Oh, come on, and we still have yeah. plenty to talk about, and I still have plenty to write about. I mean, can you imagine how boring a world it would be if everybody functioned as they purportedly should? Well, I I I I'm, I'd sign up for a little bit more of a boring world. Yeah, no, I think we've had all the excitement we can take for a while, and we'll do there. Um, but before I let you go, what are you working on next? What's on your mind right now? Joe Nocera, uh, my longtime colleague who edited the Enron book and who I wrote um, All the Devils Are Here With and I are doing a book on the pandemic. And it is less a blow by blow of the Trump administration's failings and more of a look, an economic look at the factors that hindered our response to the pandemic, what went wrong, what went right, and the fundamental changes that we're going to come out of this with. Okay. Well, you'll you'll have to agree to come back on and talk about that when that book comes out. I would love to. This has been fantastic. Thank yep. you. Thank you so much, Bethany, for taking the time, and uh, we'll see you again. Cheers. Yes. Be well. Bye. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.